Kendall Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Thank you for supporting the show and sharing it with your friends. Now here's today's show. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential podcast. In this podcast, we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Today's guest is the incredible James Osland. James is an American writer, editor, and television personality. He is the author and editor-in-chief of World Food, an acclaimed book series from 10 Speed Press. His incredible memoir, Jimmy Neurosis, hit me viscerally. We sat down to talk about food, acting, film, and our mutual friend, actress Susan Trailer. When I moved home after CalArts, I lived in Manhattan for about a, a year and then I bought a house in Wamigo and that was home base this whole time. You realize that I'm probably the only other person that you would speak to ever, not from Kansas, who knows all of these places and um, whom Kansas means something to. And it's strange. I So I, I work with a, a photographer. He's the um, fellow who shot both uh, the Paris and the Mexico City books, but we've also, we've worked together for more than 10 years when, when I was at Sever. He lives in Lawrence. Um, he was born in Topeka, raised, um, what's it called, Lindsborg, you know, oh my God. which is, yeah. And so I've been there a shit ton. Yeah. And also by complete random coincidence, um, I ended up for um, a number of months living outside of Palm Springs in the desert. I mean, just open desert, like buttfuck nowhere south of, of, of desert hot springs, if that means anything to you, with this couple, a husband and wife from Emporia. No. <laughs> yeah. And so, in fact... By way of that that relationship, I um, um, just did a uh, um, really fun, wonderful book tour um, that began in Emporia back in October, just a few months back. That's why you were there. I mean, I saw yeah. you were there, and I was like, "What the yeah. hell? Why Emporia? <laughs> Out of all the yeah. places?" That's why. And so, first stop was Emporia, which was just it was fantastic. To tell you the truth, it was just absolutely a really excellent experience in every way, every way I could think of. And then um, I was in Kansas City for for about half a week and then I was up in up in Iowa. But um, yeah, long story short, I know your neck of the woods (laughs) well, not not only better than any anybody else that you would likely speak to this afternoon, but I also I know it well. I know it well. I like I Kansas. I like I Kansas. It. I like Kansans. I this whole thing, you all you know all about it, but like that that New Yorkers or Californians tend to think about a place like Kansas. And, and then of course you ask them, have you ever been there? No. Why would I go there? <laughs> right. right. No, I know. It was like when we were doing Firecracker, which was filmed in Wamigo <laughs> for six weeks. It was based on a true crime that happened there in the 50s. Okay. And when Karen Black showed up, I mean, Susan was obsessed with Karen. And I know. Well, Susan and I, 
share an obsession with oh, Karen good. Black that goes all the way back to the 1980s when we first knew each other. So well, it, it, tell it, me, it, it's deep. <laughs> tell me, tell me how you met because I did talk to Susan a couple of weeks ago for this thing, but I want to hear your side of it. <laughs> <laughs> Susan's father was, was a mentor of mine. Um, you know, Susan's father was one of the, the great acting teachers of, well, really certainly the last hundred years along yeah. with his wife. And um, he and I just, we just really, we just hit it off. We, we just, we, we, we had a great appreciation for each other. And um, Susan was living in, in New York then she was a student at NYU, a film student at NYU. And one summer, I guess it might have been, Susan might remember more precisely, but she was going to be back in LA and Bill, her father, was like, you have to meet my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and so he was the matchmaker and he was, he was in, well, in, in so, so many so many matters he was so wise but he was he was certainly wise in that regard because he knew we would we would we would we we were a match and so we became we became hard and fast friends in 1985 1986 and so we've known each other ever since then and our shared i i would call it especially even back then our shared obsession with Karen Black was discovered. And so, and there you have it. Here we are that many years later. And, and in fact, by, by complete random coincidence, I have a, um, a guy that's um, now living with me. We're, we're, we're working on a new project and he only had it. He's 40. His birthday is this week. And he oh, cool. only had the faintest understanding of who Karen Black <laughs> is. Uh-huh. And so we watched Trilogy of Terror last oh, cool. week. We, cool. got, we, got a, we got a good version of it on, on YouTube. And so I, I had to introduce him to, to Karen Black. And he was impressed. He was impressed. And did you see Firecracker? I've not. I would love to. Well, it's been pirated forever and i got so tired of every time i would turn on youtube there it was again with like a hundred thousand <laughs> views and i was just like you guys have got to stop doing this and they were pirating a really bad version you know like visually sure. like it was like it was like a copy from a v or a vhs sure. or dvd or something sure. so i finally a few years ago i had it remastered from the original you know hd camera or whatever so it, i put out a blu-ray quality and then <laughs> i said fuck it i'll just put it on youtube because they keep at least so it would look good. You know, if people are going to steal it, I want Absolutely. it to at least look good. So that I put it on sense. there. <laughs> and um, it's it's her greatest, I think. I mean, it's up there with Great Gatsby and um, Day of the Locust. Day of the Locust, which, yeah. which I made poor Sanford, who's living with him, me. That was the next thing that we watched after Trilogy of Terror. Not the entire film, but the preview for Day of the Locust. I wanted to contextualize for him that. <laughs> well, you know, when I met her, I didn't know who she was. So I, I'm a, I was a little bit in that boat. Now, I was, I was 22, 3, or 4. I had seen a couple of those movies, but I didn't know that was Karen Black, right? And when we we sat down, and I mean, I then once once I once I was sitting down with her, 
Of course I did my research. I watched her movies. I knew who she was. <laughs> but the impact was when my dad sat down with her and he was drooling, you know, yes. like, oh my God, it's Karen Black. And, and the first thing she says was, do you know what word I like? Cock. <laughs> and then she was just like, and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What's going on? Um, so we were in, in Kansas making this movie. Karen was there. Susan was there. Jane Meadland from the Go-Go's was there. Pleasant Gaiman. Did you ever, did you ever know Pleasant? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, she was there. We were. I worked at the LA Weekly. That's how I know. Pleasant oh, cool. Gaiman. Where's oh, cool. It was my first journalism job. Oh, cool. How did you get from film school to acting? I mean, I wept a dozen or more times listening to Jimmy Neurosis. And it really impacted me. And not to say that we have had similar lives in any regard, but there were so many aspects of it that really hit me in a really beautiful way that I just every now and again would just be weeping while I was listening to it. So I'm familiar with your, your story up until the point at which, you know, that sort of that stops um, in your life. And then, you know, it's like, I knew that you went and studied with Susan's dad. I knew that you then, how did you, I mean, were you interested in acting all the time or were you, was this just something else? Was it, what led you there? I was always interested in cinema. I was never particularly interested in acting and it was really quite accidental how acting came into my creative life. And, you know, it's, it's not, something I'm I'm especially involved with these days, but I I always look back on the years that I acted as something as a as a very fruitful and worthwhile period. Um you know the funny thing about acting is it you know when you're when you're in it and you're doing it and you're you're utilizing that part of who you are creatively, that part of your brain, that part of your soul, boy do you get turned on to all sorts of other things about who you are. It's just it's just, I, I don't know if that makes any sense yeah. to be, if it would make any sense to anybody else other than me, but it, it, it was, it was, it was a, it was a wonderful and completely accidental time. And, you know, to go back to what you're referring to, you, you've, you've read Jimmy Neurosis and, and thanks, thanks for your words. Hopefully, hopefully some of those tears weren't <laughs> tears of, tears of disgust or, 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 or no, 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 I, 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 I weep with joyousness. Like I don't, I very rarely <laughs> cry with sadness or at sad things. You know, I'm, I, I react to sad situations or depression in a completely different way. But when something is beautiful, when you were get, were making the title card for your first film and you almost wrote Jimmy Neurosis and then you stopped and said, James Osland, I wept. <laughs> I just wept. I'm like, oh my God, you just claimed, you just found your voice. You just found yourself. It was just so beautiful. And I was just weeping because of the beauty. Well, that's very, that's very flattering. I mean, that's what the book is fundamentally about. You know, I was a lower middle-class kid. My dad was an office product salesman and we must've moved, gosh, I think it was literally seven times before the time I was 15 years old. I wasn't necessarily having the best time of it. Um, And my mom and dad split and my mom and I ended up back in California from whence we come my dad went in other directions and we began cobbling a, a a a new existence together my mom and i my mom was working as a kelly girl she hadn't worked at that point in in more than two decades i think it must have been 
I, we ended up in this um, suburban San Francisco town down the San Francisco peninsula, a town called San Carlos. And it was just, I mean, it, it was a, it was a combination of, of not, not very ideal things, or at least as I saw them at that point, you know, I, 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 the high school situation that I was in was just, just basically unrivaled misery. I just felt completely like a fish out of water. We'd been living in the Midwest um, just before then. And, you know, there we were crash landed in suburban Northern California, you know, just, just really, really, really upended. The, the family unit, you know, didn't exist anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was a great lover of film back then. And in, in many ways, it was a kind of, you know, it was a kind of salvation and escape through that, I suppose, indirectly had the idea for the first time, hmm, I could be an actor, <laughs> upward inflection followed by an ellipsis, because it didn't necessarily seem seem like all that practical a thing, but instead um, fell into the into the then brand spanking new world of very underground punk rock in San Francisco. So this would have I would have been fifteen years old when I when I first made my my forays into, into the nightlife. And, um, and that's, that's the period of time that the book, uh, the book documents really, you know, I mean, I, th I, th I think, frankly, Steve, you, you hit on it. The book, the book is about discover, discovering one's creative self. And the fact that like, even the first attempts at discovery can just be so, so enriching and so encouraging. Once I, more or less cleaned up my act after two or three years uh, um, in punk rock in the middle of that I dropped out of high school my gosh my poor mom what I put that woman that dear sweet <laughs> supportive woman through I mean you, you can't even know I mean the, the book gets into it but believe me there was there was even more um, at the end of all of that I finally started to bring my head above above water and not in one fell swoop, but gradually stopped being a bad boy because I'd been extremely bad for like three years for a three year period. As I mentioned, didn't graduate from high school, but back then in the late 1970s in California, there was something called the proficiency exam, which was a comparable to the GED. It was a, a high school equivalency test, but it was a state of, it was administered by the state of California. I took the test, I passed the test, and Partly through my exposure um, in the world of punk rock, I, ha I, I had discovered the San Francisco Art Institute. Back then, it barely exists anymore. But back then, it was a it was a great and formidable um, arts institution of, of of the West Coast. And took out a student loan, got into the got into the film program, and um, started started making films. 16 millimeter, very experimental, very personal um, films. And I did this um, for, for a number of years. And what was happening along the way, I guess it was the program that I was in. I don't know. People started asking me to be in their movies. Mm. And so I appeared in 
oh my gosh, like a lot of films. I don't know if you're familiar with the Kuchar brothers. I am, and I want to know how it was to learn from them. Yes. Yeah. So, well, the Kuchar brothers were are, are great figures of of global independent cinema. Their their mm-hmm. influence is is really quite deep. They are twin brothers. Um, who started making films in the 1950s when they were very young. They were still teenagers. Eight millimeter films that they would make up on the uh, rooftop of the uh, apartment building that they lived in with their family in in the Bronx. Later on, they became darlings of New York downtown cinema, the world of Jonas Mikas and, you know, the, the, the world that John Waters used to drive or take the bus up from Baltimore to be a part of. And in fact, John Waters um, claims great allegiance to and influence from the Kuchar brothers. Um, I think they must have made combined probably more than 500 films, probably at this point, most, most of them very short, but there are, there are a handful of features in there. And so I was, uh, the Kuchar brothers, one of them, Mike was teaching at the San Francisco Art Institute when I was first there. And he was enormously influential on me and I was his star for a number of years. And also his brother, George, I, I, I appeared in probably 10 of George's films Films and videos over, over the years, probably more than ten. Actually, if I if I added up my appearances in Kuchar Brother movies, I've probably been in in, in roughly twenty twenty five, and that was for example. I was also um, traveling to New York, which was a place that I was back and forth live, living in between during that period of time. I appeared in a couple of uh, New, New York underground features that were made when I was very young. I was like, I think I was 17 in my first and I think it was 19 in my second. And um, so I did this for years. And when I finished film school, I ultimately did two degrees. I got a bachelor's and a master's. That made my mom very happy. Um, I, uh, I moved to Los Angeles with the idea of I'm going to work in the movie industry. And <laughs> um, lo and behold, met, Susan's father during that time. It was actually by way of my writing partner back then was a, is a wonderful guy named Christopher Coppola. And we, we were just best buddies. We were inseparable, Christopher and I. And his brother is Nicolas Cage, the actor. And so I knew Nicholas and Nicholas was responsible for me getting to know Susan's father. And then that's how all that happened. So, you know, it's the strange, random, serendipitous journeys of life that are completely unplanned. There was no app involved. (laughs) There was no itinerary. There was nothing. It was all just these were all just things that happened. No, that's beautiful. I love that. I resonate with a lot of that because that was still when I started doing all of this, you know, there wasn't the internet. I mean, there was, but barely, you know, and wasn't it a better world back then? (laughs) You know, I think so. I remember my first trip to Europe and of course, my cell phone didn't work. And the only way I had to communicate was to go to a cafe to like log on to the AOL, you know, like once a week. It wasn't, you know, it was amazing. I loved being offline. Some of us didn't even have that, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) It's so amazing. Yeah, somehow, I don't remember how. Got a hold of Dennis Hopper. I was sitting in his house. He had me out. Sally Kirkland introduced me to Susan somehow. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't remember any of this. And then my mentor from CalArts, his wife was best friends with Karen. 
So that's how I met them. But it was just, it was in that happenstance, the, the, the synchronicity of the universe, like really it's, and it still happens, even though there is the internet and apps now, but like, you know, it's like what we were talking about. You know where Wamigo, Kansas is. No one does. <laughs> like this is no amazing. one. No <laughs> one. Thank you for that because that just helps me figure out the the timing to when you got here. How did you get here? And how did that happen? Sorry, so, it was rather long winded, but there's. It's been so hard to. It's so hard to condense. Oh, I know. Because it's so. It's complete randomness. That's the thing. Like nothing quite connects in in my own personal narrative, and I suspect. The same could probably be said of all of us in a way, which is certainly one of the things that makes life so interesting because you can never, ever, ever, ever predict what is going to come next, no matter how hard you try. Writer James Osland. Another wonderful guest is cult icon Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him. We didn't speak. <laughs> After we finished filming Pink Flamingos, I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com in our archives or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with James Osland. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson. And this is the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. I'm back with James Osland. How did you go from film and acting to food? The thing with food and my, my love for, for eating, for cooking, for ingredients, for, you know, the, the cultural discovery that's, you know, behind really every last ounce of food every last mouthful um that's always been there that's something that was there from the very very beginning i I mentioned my dad because of his job as an office product salesman not many traveled a lot he was a great what was then called gourmand and it's still a term that i that i think is so wonderful to use when he was out there in the world selling staplers and filing cabinets in in Chicago or in Minneapolis or in Seattle or wherever he happened to be, he would always make a point of eating at the great restaurant of the moment of that particular place. Back then, dining, you know, wasn't wasn't fine dining, I suppose, one like I should say, wasn't anything like what we know of fine dining to be nowadays. And it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. Yeah, it was a thing. It was a thing that many Americans appreciated and either saved up enough money or they had enough money and they, they went out for a night on the town, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't anything like this odd and peculiar landscape of chefs and, you know, uh, the whole culture of fine end dining that exists these days did not exist back then. But my dad had his own appreciation for that. And he would come back from where he, wherever he'd been traveling. And it also turned out that he was a really excellent cook and he would duplicate or replicate whatever he'd eaten along mm. the road. 
So if you can imagine a dish like barbecue shrimp from um, New Orleans, it's a classic dish of a, a restaurant called Commander's Palace. And it's not barbecue shrimp, like shrimp just thrown on the grill. It's barbecue in the sense of like there's the shrimp are made with this wonderfully complicated, very, very New, New Orleansian sauce. And that's one of the dishes that he might make or sauerbraten or, you know, which was a gourmet classic that cooks made back then. That's what turned me on. And so I was always really awestruck at what my dad was capable of in the kitchen. And sometimes I would help him out. When I was seven or eight years old, I, even then I was an avid watcher of Julia Child, the French chef episodes mm. on PBS. And one Sunday afternoon, Julia Child had made a Caesar salad, an authentic Caesar salad in the style of the original dish from Tijuana, which is where it came from, a, a restaurant in Tijuana. And the episode ended. It turned out that we had all the ingredients on hand from the romaine lettuce to the, to the Tabasco, to the egg, to the anchovies. And I asked my parents, can I make this? And I did. And it was a great success. And from that moment on, I was always cooking. I was always cooking and seeking ingredients. And I just, I discovered very early the great pleasure that cooking can be, you know, I was lucky enough to have my dad. He taught me how to be a gourmand. And in a funny way, I was kind of raised like a, like a French kid to understand the differences between different kinds of cheeses. Back then, we didn't, we didn't have exposure, for example, to great wine. There was basically, you know, Gallo, and that was it. But even that was a starting point. And, um, and it set me on this, this lifelong path of appreciating the, the pleasures of food. And the period of my life that is discussed in the book that you read in Jimmy Neurosis was anomalous. I mean, that was a period where it was more about doing as many really bad things as I could do in a very concentrated period. It wasn't, wasn't necessarily about eating fine no, things. No, but there so, were... There were but the recipes that popped up or you mentioned like the scalloped potatoes, then I immediately went to the cover of the Paris book. Like, I'm like, is that why it's on the cover? Like, were, were those memories of the meals that you had just really seared in there in your brain? I mean, I, I never, I, I, I say this and watch, I probably do, but I think I never forget a meal. I think mm -hmm. I, 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 tend, I tend to be someone who, who just always, always remembers what I, what I eat. And food is just, it's very exciting to me. And it's endlessly exciting. In fact, funnily, we're sort of jumping ahead in the narrative here, but like my love for food and the culture surrounding it had, had always been there, certainly at least since I was seven or eight years old. In fact, it was so much there that I didn't want to ever risk wrecking it by turning it into work or, or a job mm. or a career, mm. something like that, that I depended on in a different way. I always wanted to just appreciate it. And so even back in my LA days, when I, for example, would be working on a film as an actor, when the caterer wouldn't show up, I would volunteer my services and said, I can cook for everybody. It's not a problem. And so, you know, that's just, kind of just always been there. I've always been that person. I love that. Now, growing up, my mother made like four great things, right? Like she made it. Lucky fantastic. you. Like, Lucky but, you. But, 
but nothing else. And we would eat out all the time um, just because it was easier for them. And, but it was always crap. I mean, it, 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 especially, it, you know, Kansas in the eighties was not, <laughs> there was not fine dining. And sure, if it was, it, it was, you know, the steakhouse, you know, the fancy place that you might get, a you know, fish and chips. You know, sure, or, right. <laughs> well, I'm amazed that you actually mentioned the word fish in Kansas, because usually it's it's pretty much persona non grata. <laughs> no, yeah, it's just it's just frozen, battered, you know, store bought. Whatever. Kansans tend to not even know canned tuna. <laughs> right, right. No, I know. And but we also. We were, I was very fortunate. We were able to travel a lot. The first time I went to London, I was 11. Ooh. And I was raised seeing cultures and different kinds of food and races and genders and couples. And, and by in such a young age that I didn't know that was not how it was supposed to be. So growing up in Kansas, I was in a bit of a bubble because I was, I was seeing the world Yet I was, you know, a gay guy from Wamigo, Kansas, and I'm looking around me and I, I don't feel, I mean, I was never in the closet because I didn't know you were supposed to be. <laughs> right. So, Same with my experience. Same yeah, with my you experience. Were just, you were just, you, you, you know, know you. not to not to say anything insulting to to the challenges of others, but I was always perplexed by so many who had problems with with those those issues, the coming out yeah. part, because it's like, really? Why would that be a problem? There are so many other problems. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I know, exactly. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize I was a, a bit naive until I got older. And then when I got older, I realized, oh, I see how that's, that's what the world's like. But I, I've never owned a microwave. Good and for I, you. Good yeah. for you. They're, they're, they're not good. They're no, not good. I, I love the time it takes the the love of making something and especially when you're with people and and or you're just learning or you know you're you're slicing the thing and you're just feeling it and they're so it, for me it's visual it's all it's it's just as similar as watching a film or anything else or looking at some photographs or whatever the colors and the textures of food are as exciting for me as watching a really textured movie you know like it's just always been like that and my first trip to Paris, I think my first sort of theatrical meal was a Guy Savoy in like 2000, I don't remember when it was, four or five or six. And, you know, when they would bring out the dishes that had like layers and, you know, you, but I didn't know it at the time, they would set the dish down and you'd eat the thing in the bowl, but then they'd remove the bowl and the egg had dripped down into the bottom part of the bowl. And there was a whole other meal underneath. And it was like this whole thing that I didn't know. And I, I really fell in love with sort of the theatrical elements of, of a meal. Right. Um, I don't know how to cook any of that stuff, but no one that, does. You have to, no. have a, you have to have a staff of 30. <laughs> of course. Know. But on that same trip, I went to uh, the ham and butter baguette place. Le Petit Vendôme, I think is what it's called. Just right around from where like the Ritz kind of is. And it was this window on the street. And you couldn't get in because it was always so packed, but you could just walk up to the window and there was a mound of this beautiful butter just sitting there. And you'd get either a whole or a half. Those were the only options. And the woman would take this big wooden spoon and dig into the butter and just slather the baguette and throw the ham on it, wrap it up and hand it to you. And it was the best damn sandwich I've ever had in my life. That sounds <laughs> yummy. Who wouldn't want to eat that right now? 
It's incredible. <laughs> I, I cannot wait to go back someday. But what I love about, I'm jumping ahead to your books. These are my two favorite cities in the whole world. And I love that they're, Mexico City, I love, was first. I mean, it's, I, and I love that Paris is second. I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I came to Mexico City for the first time. I was weeping with joy from the first moment. It was the most beautiful city I've ever seen. It was like, how did I not know this was like Paris and Barcelona and other something else entirely, right? Just combined, you know, and all the uh, jacaranda trees and all the boulevards and the and all the wires. Like I was just always so fascinated by all the, <laughs> the, 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 the wires of electricity and telephones. I'm like, what happens when they have to fix one? How do they find it? <laughs> he was like, I don't know how they find it. <laughs> I had the great fortune to not know anything about Mexico City, but um, I made my first trip here when I was 17. It was right when I was fresh in art school, had wrapped up the, the bad boy punk rock chapter of my life. My dad and I drove from New Orleans, where he was then living. He was living outside of New Orleans in a, in a place called La Place. And we drove from there all the way through Texas, all the way through northern Mexico to Mexico City in his station wagon. And then we continued on. We, we drove to the southern, southernmost point of Mexico, uh, the state of Chiapas, and then we drove back. And so we stopped in, in, in Mexico City, both going down and then coming back up. And, and that was my, my very first foreign experience. I'd never been outside of the United States prior to then. It was a three-week trip. Um, we, we, allowed, we, we allowed enough time, um, thankfully, to, to enjoy things. But that, that experience really did turn me around. I mean, it, was, it completely showed me a world that I'd only faintly imagined before. And there I was in the middle of it, you know, and, and it sounds like a, a not dissimilar experience to the one that you had, where I was just, well, I was so impressed. And at the same time, almost felt like, wow, how lucky that this magical, old, complicated, colorful, it, it, it almost impenetrably complicated place is just right next door. I yeah. don't have to, I don't have to get on, you know, some gigantic, um, many jet lag hours involved trip to Italy or to Southeast Asia. It's just right next door. My dad and I drove there. We drove there, you know? Yeah. And um, so that's something that very much got inside of me and, and, and definitely changed the path of my life. Were you aware of how awesome the food was there then at that time? Sure. You know, it was my dad and I, so food was front and center in, in every single thing that we ever did, and certainly on our, on our first trip to Mexico. But um, we even ate in Mexico City at what was the, the great restaurant of Mexico at the time. It was the place that Gourmet Magazine would write about, or the New York Times. So if Craig Claiborne was in Mexico City, he would go to this restaurant. It was called Fonda El Refugio. 
Um, and it no longer exists. It closed mm, 10, 15 years ago. It just fell out of favor. You know, mm. it got it got replaced by all these kind of restaurants, these contemporary restaurants that make me angry these days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tend to be very old fashioned in my tastes. I mean, sure, I appreciate modern modernizations in all things, in, including in fine, fine dining. But there's there's nothing better than an old fashioned restaurant experience. Yeah. Was El Cardinal there then? It was, but we didn't know it. The first El Cardinal would have been there then, which was in a different location than the one that most people know know of um, in the center of Mexico City. It was nearby. Um, But but El Cardinal, funny that you bring that up. It's it's an excellent excellent restaurant, and and I recommend it all the time. It's one place in Mexico City that... Sure, it's not on the on the eater hot list. Thank right. goodness, yeah. but it's it's a great place to go get a sense of regional Mexican cooking. You're not going to have the best versions of, of regional dishes. It's a restaurant. They have a right. they have a right. big menu. They also have a very big kitchen staff there. They present on the table in front of you. Uh, a taste of Mexico that you're not going to get if you go to one of the, the, the restaurants that are on the, uh, you know, traveler's top 10 list. Right, right. Well, that's where I first had Fideo. Mm-hmm. And they have really good Fideo. They you do. Have the, the soupy one or the more casserole one? The more casserole one. So Fideo is, for people who don't know, it's, it's, it's noodles. And it can either come in a kind of soupy form. They're noodles, thin noodles, like a vermicelli, just mm-hmm. regular, regular old egg noodles. But the, the best thing that's made of fideos in, in Mexico, to my mind, and one of the great dishes of Mexico is, is, the, is a casserole that's, that's made, made of these, these noodles. And it's usually fl- um, flavored with uh, chipotle chili. And, and, it, and it has cotija cheese on grated on top, which is a, a kind of salty, salty-ish, semi-dry garnish cheese of Mexico. And they make it super well at El Cardenal. And whenever yes. I go there, no matter what I'm ordering, I always get, I, I always get a, a nice bowlful. Uh, it's, it's Mexican comfort food. Totally. And I love one time we were there, it was like 1130 or 12 and the Fideo wasn't done yet. And I was like, oh shit, we've got to sit here for another hour because I'm not, I have to have the Fideo. We literally, we waited until like one or one thirty when the Fideo was done so that we could finish eating. Yummy. That sounds very civilized. It's so exciting. I love that place. I mean, just for the Fideo. I've had the Fideo other places, but I think theirs is my favorite so far. Um, <laughs> and I've tried to make it here. Really what right. you need are those chipotles, the chipotle chilies okay. that are in Alavada means they've been stewed with a little bit of piloncillo. And so they're like sweet pickled chipotle chilies. They're the secret uh-huh. ingredient. And as far as the, the tomato part, you just make that yourself. You don't, you don't okay. need to, you don't need to buy a can. You just get like a couple of Roma tomatoes and you basically throw them in the blender. Um, but, um, it's, it's very easy to make it. And if you're making it in quantity, it's like a perfect thing for a brunch or if you've got people over because it it lives on the table, it doesn't die. It stays delicious for some time. Yeah. And isn't it meant for children? 
It is the it is perfect kids food. What we're talking about is technically called fideo seco, yeah. dry, which is a really ugly. It translates into two ugly words: dry noodles. But it's <laughs> but it's an it's a noodle casserole, and it's 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 freaking delicious. Oh, the other my favorite thing is cafe de olla, which I love. That's in your book, how to make it. Because now I don't know. I, I'm going to have to go to the Mexican market here to see if I can get whatever the, the the sweet part of it is. The sugar, which is piloncillo, which is the yeah. thing we were just talking about, the, the canned chipotles, they, it's, it's that same sugar. It's, it's, it's one of the main sugars of Mexico. It's the substance you see, it looks like a cone. Um, it's cone-shaped and it's hard. It's a brown sugar. And essentially all it is is um, sugar, sugar cane juice that has been boiled down until it's just that wonderfully caramelized color and then poured into molds. And that's what you use in Cafe de Oya, um, which is a, a classic uh, way of, of preparing coffee in Mexico. And it's so quintessentially Mexican in that, oh my gosh, it's brewed coffee. Yet there are these aromatic ingredients. There's a little bit of clove. There's a there's cinnamon stick. There's orange peel. There's the sugar that I just talked about. And so it's coffee that becomes becomes something else. It becomes Mexican. Oh. It becomes a delicious Mexican hot beverage. And once you've had it, you don't want to drink anything else for breakfast. No, it's magic. And magic. I, that was the that was the same time I because we were at a fonda mm-hmm. when I had it for the first time for breakfast. And then I was obsessed with going to every fonda we could find. You know, every day I was like, "Where's the next <laughs> fonda? Where are we?" But tell tell people who are listening what is a fonda. A funda is is basically a, um, a Mexican, in particular a Mexico City, that's what they're called here, version of a diner. It's a corner diner, except, you know, Mexico City doesn't necessarily have the same, you know, rules and regulations surrounding what it takes to open or open up a restaurant or a diner. And so a lot of times, a lot of the time, what what uh, the form that a fonda takes in Mexico City is it's in someone's home, and you know, and you, you're you're basically you're walking into someone's home, maybe not their living room, but the public part of their home where they have a few tables set up, and there's a kitchen somewhere behind the scenes, and um, they're generally o- only open for lunch, which in Mexico doesn't mean 12 o'clock sharp lunch and lunch in Mexico means more like 2.30, 3.30, maybe even as late as 4.30. It's kind of like an early dinner, late lunch, which is a wonderful system, by the way. I mean, I, it, it, um, I've, I've lived in Mexico for five years now. I've traveled in Mexico a, a ton. I mean, I've probably been to Mexico 35 times before actually living here. You know, it didn't take too much getting used to. I was like, hey, this system works. Eating later, eating a big meal later, having a light meal um, in the evening. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's boom. It's it's fantastic. So anyway, these, these places fill up around 2.30 with workers, you know, from nearby with somebody who just happens to be hungry and stump on a fonda in front of them. And they're not always as humble as what I was describing. Sometimes they're a little more, they're a little more elevated. In fact, you know, the restaurant that I was telling you about, the, the grand restaurant that my dad and I went to, it, it, its name was Fonda Refugio because it's so commonplace in the, in the, in the vernacular. It means, it means really homey eating. 
more more mm. than anything in, in in Mexico City culture. And I like that there's only one or two choices. You know, it's either do you want this or this. Isn't that the smartest thing ever? So yeah, you you sit down and it's a fixed meal that you're paying for. You know, and normally you have five six entree choices and a handful of of entrada choices that the what's going to precede the the entree. And you know, gosh, there's a place just around the corner from me where you don't get a meal that's going to change your life, but who wants a meal that's going to change your life? You're just, you're having a work day. You don't want to, you know, <laughs> eat, you know what I mean? You just, you, yes. you want to eat like fideo seco, um, something that's satisfying and that's going to, you know, just get you through the rest of the day. But there's a place around the corner for me. You sit down and it's basically five bucks for three, 3.5 courses. And, you know, that's unbeatable. There's a dish in the Mexico City cookbook. There's like a fish with like olive and it probably comes more from, oh, Spain. what is it? Spain. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, back, it's bacalao. It's salt cod, which is yeah. the classic Mexico City Christmas dish, which is so like, that's not something that the, the average person north of the border in the States knows anything about like right. the, under the classic Mexican Christmas dish is salt caught with olives. That's strange. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing. Now I did really, really love how, which one was it? I didn't write it down. I meant to write it down. Enrique Olvera's place. You know, they're excellent. I tend to, you know, I've, I've worked in that world and, uh-huh. you know, I was a judge on TV for five years, judging chefs and their, exotic and elaborate creations. I tend to be somebody who uh, appreciates more, though, just average everyday food. I mean, that's really honestly what gets me excited. And I think that in many ways, it's not only an, an idle pursuit, although what can be more pleasurable than than food and good eating and nice cookbooks and, you know, all things that that are associated with that. But I, I tend to think that a lot of the dialogue, at least in the part of the world that we inhabit and that we're lucky enough to inhabit living in places like Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco and, you know, where there's fine dining available. Well, gosh, there's even fine dining probably available in Manhattan, Kansas these days. Um, you know, I ate some really yummy, sophisticated things when I was recently in Emporia, Kansas. Fine dining is interesting. The world's of chefs, you know, is fascinating. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's a sliver of 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 humanity. And the fact is the, the amount of people that are lucky enough to have an experience like eating at and and a a restaurant of Enrique Alvera, who's a a great chef of Mexico City, or 11 Madison Park in New York City, one of the great restaurants in the world, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's it's not food. (laughs) It's what you were referring to earlier. It's theatricalism is what Mm -hmm. it is. And it's, you know, it's it's a lot of ingredients thrown. I'm using the wrong language. It's about to say thrown together. In fact, actually, what what happens in these in these kitchens is, you know, it's it's a it's a kind of art form. And 
you know, but it's, it's ingredients that don't necessarily belong together traditionally. I, I, I tend to be excited about the fact that food has roots that are so much richer and older and deeper and accessible than, you know, than, than a fine dining experience, which mm-hmm. is a kind of one in a billion sort of thing. But instead, I'm interested in, you know, what nourishes us every day. And also, like, how does the place that we are, that we live in, what grows there, our, our cultural traditions, our traditions in the kitchen, how do they, how do they find their way into, into the foods of, of the everyday? These are the things that really thrill me. This is, my, this, is, this is where I made the decision to not want to work in food because I didn't want to wreck it. But yeah. instead, you know, turn turn the car in that direction because I think a lot of the way that we eat, we in the United States, even in Mexico, it's a it's a it's a kind of disaster. And I'm not talking about you know when we go out to have a fine dining experience at at at, at Eleven Madison Park. I'm I'm talking about how we eat in the every day. Yeah. All, all anyone needs to do is just go to any supermarket near them and see what people are getting putting into in their carts. And more and more people are forgetting how to cook. They're forgetting how to they're forgetting how to eat with their families, yeah. with their loved ones, with their friends, which is if we lose that. And believe me, from like every every survey I've ever done in my own life, that is not out of the question that that could like go away. You know, I mean, it's not out of the question. And again, I'm not talking about elevated people who understand ingredients like fine olive oil and, and, and pomegranate syrup, but I'm talking about how the world eats and the industrialization of food and how really, really, really honestly bad a lot of the conditions surrounding how we nourish ourselves as a species is at a catastrophic breaking point. And I, and I see it, in fact, as a, as, a, as a red alert emergency situation. And it's one of the reasons that I kind of turn away from the, world's, the world of chefs and fine dining. I think that, yeah, that's all great. You know, but it's overtaken the dialogue to the point where, I mean, a lot of young people who are raised on food TV, on Mm -hmm. on cooking competition shows, they don't even know how to open up a can. You know, their eating has become this kind of other thing or it's becoming this other thing, which is really, really kind of dangerous and scary. And instead, you know, my message is learn how to cook a pot of beans. It's really easy. It's gratifying. It's affordable. And boy, do they taste better than the kind that come out of the can. Totally. That's what I love about the books also is that these are stories about people and their families and what they do. And it's like, it comes with a soul. You know, there's, I'm not, I'm not saying there's no soul in the theatrics of, I mean, it's like going to eat at a fine dining restaurant is like, okay, we're going to go to Broadway. We're going to see whatever. Exactly. But we don't need to do that every week, you know, or every day. Um, you know, just once in a blue moon, it's kind of a fun. It's fun. It's dinner. Entertainment. Theater. It's yeah, dinner. Totally. Theater. 
but it's not it but one can't nourish one's body or or one's culture you know spending that kind of money and you know that's what interests me is what people do and celebrating that and that's what this book series is about it's about it's about the human culture surrounding food and what a wonderful and extraordinary mirror is reflected on the table in the fonda in mexico city or or um the bistro in in paris the the humble corner bistro where the old folks who live in the apartment building upstairs that's where they go and have lunch every single day you know these are the things that i want to celebrate and call attention to again going back to what i was mentioning earlier i think that too much of the general perception of um, surrounding food and dining has been kind of hijacked by this false messaging and so so you can hear me i i get kind of soapboxy about it all <laughs> I, i love it though What makes you curious? There isn't one single thing that doesn't make me curious. Cool. Yeah. Literally, I, I mean, absolutely every single thing. I mean, that's just how I'm wired. I just, I, I'm fascinated by like literally every single thing. Um, in fact, actually, when I was in the corporate world and I was a magazine editor in chief and I was constantly bringing new people on staff and needing to hire people and being, being the interviewer invariably my primary goal in finding out whoever that new person was that was sitting in front of me in my office My primary goal was to find out how curious they were. And I usually had these kind of trick questions about trying to find out, are you the kind of person that finds something like, who invented the stapler? Like, who the heck thought of the stapler? <laughs> yes. And like, you know, those, those, those staples that like, you know, that come in that cartridge that you placed so neatly in the thing like what why are they stuck how are they stuck together like that is that glue so i would figure out ways to sort of lead the conversation toward 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 that so in in it too i i mean i can say this without question that everyone who knows me knows that i am i am someone who is insatiably curious it's just what i am writer james osland You can get James Osland's books of World Food, Mexico City, and World Food, Paris, and his memoir, Jimmy Neurosis, anywhere books are sold. Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our original theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. If you have a question about filmmaking you'd like me to answer on the podcast, send me an email using the contact form on the website. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, 
and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going.